you notice in verse 12, there's a reminder who brought them out of Egypt. You see that over and over in the Hebrew Scriptures. This was the God who brought them out of slavery and liberated them. Think about it. Their ancestors, just two generations before, had been in slavery in Egypt. And God asked them to do this kind of funky thing that I don't think that they understood, but they in faith trusted even what they didn't understand. And they were to sacrifice a lamb. By the way, they were to have the lamb in their home with them for four days. I think part of that is so they would really get to know this lamb. It would almost become kind of like a family pet. The kids might have been, you know, playing with it. In other words, what they wanted to know is this sacrifice is meaningful. It's taking what's precious. And you see, that, that points to the precious Son of God, Jesus. Hello, welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today's sermon is entitled The Lost Generation. It was based on Judges 2, 6 through 15. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. Years ago, when we lived on the West Coast, uh, uh, Carolyn and I socialized with uh, friends, another couple who were just a few years older than us. Uh, They were both physicians. She was a family physician, and he was a surgeon, primarily heart surgery. Uh, He actually uh, performed heart surgery on a family member of ours. And they shared a little bit with us their story. She served on the school board uh, where Carolyn was teaching, and and one evening we were having dinner together, and she just shared her story. Uh, she grew up uh, on the East Coast and uh, <clears throat> was part of a church family. She was even voted by her peers as the president of the youth group. And then she won a scholarship to an Ivy League school. And with great excitement, she, she went off to this prestigious school, and, and within a semester, her faith began to erode. Part of it was she was being asked questions she'd never been asked before, never really thought about before, and it began to erode the foundation of her faith and her worldview. Another thing was that for the first time she was in a community where a lot of her friend group viewed Christianity as something negative. And then she also, most of her friend group partied quite a bit, so she started partying with them in order to fit in, and that led to substances. And out of this, the next 10 years, her words were, we lost 10 years of our lives. Even though going through med school, the next 10 years was filled with substance addiction and a trail of broken and sometimes abusive relationships until finally Anna and her husband Greg came back to Christ. But still, years later, they still were battling some of the substances that were kind of become a trail in their life. How tragic that this woman who grew up in a church, who was part of a youth group when she went off to college, when later in life, the foundation of her faith was tragically eroded. Now, let's think about this. No church ever thinks, you know, the young adults in our church family, they're going to reject church someday. No parents Expect You know, I, I, I think our kids will probably wander away from God and, and want nothing to do with faith. But it happens, and it's happening, and it's, it's like the tide is rising. A few examples. 
This is bringing together research from the Barna Group and Gallup polling that somewhere in the neighborhood of 7% of the emerging generation, so that's 24 and under, only about 7% identify as Christians. If the trend continues, when they reach age 40, so that would be anywhere from 15 to 25 years from now, it's anticipated that church attendance in New England will be about 4%. Something else, um, Google exvangelical for exvangelical, and you'll read story after story, a movement of people who were formerly evangelical or formerly part of a gospel-centered church who are now saying, I don't have anything to do with it. It's almost become fashionable to be an exvangelical. This is tragic what's happening in our own backyard, in our own community, in our world. But FBC will do whatever it takes to reverse the curse. We will do whatever it takes to help reach out to and equip the emerging generation to, to have a worldview that when there's clashes of worldviews, they're at least prepared to address those questions, who have a depth of faith, who have experienced in community and seen not a toxic version of Christianity that's so easy to deconstruct and throw baby Jesus out with the bathwater, but instead a faith that's as healthy as can possibly be within community together. And so we're launching just a two-week generation-to-generation sermon series. This is a two-week sermon series. We'll look this week at some of what we collectively as a church can be doing and we who are spiritual parents. Next week, we'll look in our homes, parents, grandparents, or spiritual parents, how we can be making a difference, nurturing the emerging generation in faith. We're also looking at steps each of us can take that we'll talk about when we wrap up this morning. We're doing this as we launch the school year. It's kind of the beginning of a new season. Children all over the Pioneer Valley, we see them going back to school. And so think about the children of our church, the children in our community, the 35 or 40,000 college students who are about to descend on and are beginning to descend on campuses. As we turn to Judges chapter 2, now this is found in the Blue Bibles in front of you on page 234. For those of you who are worshiping at home, because we're one church in the house and in homes and apartments and cafes online, queue up your device, turn in your Bible or to page 234, Judges chapter 2, and we're going to join the narrative in verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things the Lord had done. This is like God's eulogy on this generation. This is God looking back and giving us, here's kind of a snapshot of this generation. And it said they served the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That's what I want of my generation, of all of our generations, that, that, that there at least be a predominance, or at least in each of our own lives, that we faithfully served, we faithfully reflected God's love and grace and justice and hope to the people around us in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community, on our campus, and out among the world. What will be God's eulogy for our generations? Will it be, ah, oh, they were so busy. 
that they never really got around to that much faith formation or to really serving or really investing in the next generation. They, they had more resources than any generation in human history, but they were so busy achieving a standard of living that advertisers told them that they need to have and that they saw around them that they compared themselves and they just kept buying more stuff and stuff and stuff and never got around to being generous for the kingdom of God, that, that they began to be acculturated with the culture around them to where it was hard to have any distinction of what, what is there any difference between a Christ follower and the culture? If not, why bother? Well, will God's eulogy of this generation be this thing called COVID came and somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of people never came back to church and aren't expected to come back to church. I pray that God will say of our generations that are represented here, starting with our own lives, God will look back and say, by my grace, because they were imperfect, they struggled, they stumbled, by God's grace, God raised them up. But the narrative was they loved God more and more with their heart. They were grateful to Jesus because he had rescued them through a painful sacrifice on the cross. And that they served as God's hands and feet and voice just in, in, in simple, everyday ways in their home and to their neighbor across the street and down the dorm floor and in the next apartment in their community and out among the nations. May it be so for your life and my life and of our generations and of our church family. And if there was ever a generation who had a story to tell to the next generation, that's Joshua's generation. Let's remember they were born in the wilderness, or some of them may have been children when they came out of the promised land, but most of them were born in the wilderness. God fed them manna every day. They complained about it, but God made sure they had food every day. They never stressed, am I going to have a meal today? God fed them manna in the wilderness. They saw the stone tablets that Moses brought down the mountain that had the Ten Commandments on them. They had been taught, maybe other than the generation of Jesus, uh, God's law more specifically as Moses taught them day after day after day the direct revelation he was getting from God. They had been taught so profoundly. They had crossed the Jordan River during flood season on dry land. They had watched before their eyes the walls of, of Jericho fall. By the way, the, the biblical archaeology review a few years ago had an article about, uh, we're not sure, and, and Carol and I have been there, we've seen the ruins, uh, it, it, not sure whether Jericho or not, but it might be. But, but there's one stronghold, because remember, Jericho was a military garrison. The Hebrew people uh, did, didn't come into a suburb right, and, and claim the land. They came into a military outpost, okay? And this military outpost, the walls had fallen outward. Never in, in, in human history has there been a siege and the walls fall outward. Makes no sense. They watched the walls of Jericho crumble before them. And they came into the promised land. Wow. If any generation, probably except for the generation of Jesus, had seen God's power, had heard God's teaching, had, had experienced God's care, it's this generation. But look what happens. Move down to verse 10. 
After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what the Lord had done for Israel. Now we read that that whole generation, that's the generation that had experienced everything that we've talked about in the wilderness, entered into the promised land, that generation had been gathered to their ancestors. That's a nice Hebrew poetic way to say that they died. And we do the same thing. We say, well, they, they, they passed, they passed on, which I understand. But what this is really saying, they all died. They're all gone. And now it's the next generations. What a unique generation. Taught God's law, seen God's power. They, their parents, and some of them as children, had gone from slavery to liberty through the exodus. God had instructed them to build a, a stone monument. And that stone monument meant every time they passed by, a remind, oh, that's right, God... God cared for us in the wilderness, brought us through the river, gave us this land by his grace. Every time they pass by with their children, children say, what's that? What's a stone? Oh, kids, I, let me tell you what that is. That's to remind us this is what God has done for us. Thanks be to God. But, but the next generation we read two things. First of all, they didn't know the Lord. We can understand that. Because every generation and every person, it's a choice, isn't it? If we could weave into our children's DNA that they'll follow Christ for, for a lifetime, we, we would all do it, wouldn't we? But every generation and every individual makes the choice of whether they're going to choose to embrace Christ, receive grace from the cross, and choose to, to follow, follow their loving Creator's pathway of life. But the indictment comes with the second clause. They knew neither the Lord nor what the Lord had done for Israel. They didn't know the story. They didn't, they, they didn't grasp what had happened in their parents' generation. It hadn't been passed down to them. I wonder why not. Were they too busy with such oh, excitement building their lives and they were too busy and somehow faith took somewhere off on the peripheral? Or were they so acculturated to the surrounding uh, cultures that their kids said, you know, God doesn't seem to make a lot of difference because, I mean, the way you live is, isn't much different than everybody else, so why, why would I bother? Or maybe, maybe they went to Tabernacle, which is our version of church. Maybe they went to Tabernacle once a week and their kids were kind of there, and they said, good, check that off, our children's faith. Maybe they assumed, you know, we just assumed that our children, of course, will follow God, assuming it. Or maybe some of them had a toxic faith at home, and their kids said, oh, if that's faith, we don't know. It's probably all the above. But it's challenging for you and me, isn't it? Because there are a lot of cultural pressures around us that can so captivate our lives. Some of them good things that our culture cheers, other things that we know can lead to toxicity and and warp our witness of the gospel and damage our lives. And if we sprinkle a little bit of Christianity in on top of that, for the next generation, they're going to see that and know that. They're going to see right through it. So we don't know exactly, but it's challenging to us. And here's kind of a concept for us. What isn't intentional normally doesn't happen. 
don't know how many times in my life I've thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. And I think about it, I may talk about it, I may write up a plan, but if I don't intentionally do it, it doesn't happen. There's not an intentional plan. And apparently this generation didn't have any intentionality, even though God set it all up for them. They didn't have intentionality to pass faith to the next generation. Look at the impact. Verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. The next generation did evil in the eyes of the Lord. One generation removed. Evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here, here's what's so tragic. Do you notice in verse 12, there's a reminder who brought them out of Egypt. You see that over and over in the Hebrew Scriptures. This was the God who brought them out of slavery and liberated them. Think about it. Their ancestors, just two generations before, had been in slavery in Egypt. And God asked them to do this kind of funky thing that I don't think that they understood, but they in faith trusted even what they didn't understand. And they were to sacrifice a lamb. By the way, they were to have the lamb in their home with them for four days. I think part of that is so they would really get to know this lamb. It almost become kind of like a family pet. The kids might have been, you know, playing with it. In other words, what they wanted to know is this sacrifice is meaningful. It's taking what's precious. And you see, that, that points to the precious Son of God, Jesus, who is sacrificed and they were to sacrifice that lamb and put the blood over the doorposts of their home imagine us there i mean we we know the story this is passover but they're like god this is kind of funk up we but we will trust you and when that happened the death angel passed over their homes they lived they were then liberated in the exodus out of slavery Now they're like runaway slaves and God guides them to Mount Sinai where God claims them as his own people, covenants with them and says, now you will be a light to the world in our darkened world. That's what this generation experienced. And you see, the point of it is this is our story. That's the gospel being pointed to because we were in bondage. We were enslaved by sin and our filth and darkness and depravity and brokenness but our Passover lamb who's precious to us Jesus was sacrificed on the cross and the blood of Christ covers over our sins and we're clothed in Christ's righteousness and we are then God's beloved children and we too are on a journey that often feels like it's through the wilderness toward the promised land that's our story and so Here's, here's the challenge. How could we not do whatever it takes? I mean, whatever it takes. Some people ask me, what would you like church to be like? Greg, what can I? And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care about the worship style. I don't care how it's structured. I don't care what the ministries look like. I don't care how much we use technology. None of that stuff matters to me. One thing matters. Are people falling in love with Jesus and becoming more like Jesus? And are we reaching out to more people? Amen? That's the mission. Because in eternity, that, that's what's going to matter. And our witness among our neighbors, the people see who Jesus really is. How could we not do whatever it takes 
to pass the story, pass the gospel to the next generation in our homes and as a church community. We'll continue in verse 12 and we see just how, just how damaging this became. They worshipped various gods of the peoples around them and aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asterisks. Now this describes the next generation. This is a snapshot of eight generations. If you read the book of Judges, and by the way, be ready if you read the book of Judges. It's probably the most savage book in Scripture. Don't read it before going to bed, okay? I mean, it's just, it shows the depth of the spiral of depravity eight generations after this generation and how God intervened, and every time God would intervene, they oh, thank you, and then they'd be forgotten, and they'd spiral again, okay? And so it describes the next eight generations. And he, here's what happens. Our hearts are shaped by whatever we worship, okay? So when I worship God because we were created, to, there's like a vacuum within us meant, meant to worship, and, and, and that was like... A, torn asunder. It was warped, damaged, wounded by the fall. And so now we search for something to worship. When we worship God, we become shaped more like God, more like Christ. But when we begin to have on the platforms of our lives where either status or success or substances or popularity or that person begins to take the center stage that will shape us more than God. And we've all known people who say, man, I, you know, we haven't seen them for a while, and then we see them and say, wow, that, that person really changed. And we realize that they really kind of got drawn in or warped by something. Sometimes our culture even cheers it on. And so these next eight generations, one generation removed from this generation didn't pass faith, Instead of worshiping God, they began to worship the idols of the cultures around them. And there were a lot of them, but two are specified. I want us to understand. Let's do a little bit of anthropology here and kind of look at what this is about, okay? Uh, Baal and Asherah. These were two of the most popular deities, and we know a lot about them from archaeology. There were thousands of clay tablets found at Amarna and Rosh Shamra. They date as far back as 1400 BC, and they tell us about the deities of ancient um, Canaan. And Baal and Asherah are like the headliners of this. Baal was the god of fire. And so many people would take their firstborn child, and they would pass it through the fire. In other words, they would throw it into a fire pit. Worship of Baal. Asherah? Asherah was the goddess of fertility. Worship Asherah and your family be fertile so so you can have a lot of kids. They normally wanted boys. Why? Because that, that was your farm labor force and that was your retirement security. And also so your crops would be fertile. And so there were temple shrines with prostitutes. Most of them were 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old girls, usually captive because of war or trafficked. And it's like, hey, honey, I'll see you tonight. I'm going to worship Asherah. Okay, honey, I'll worship Asherah, and our crops will be good. And you would go, and you'd have sex with a temple prostitute. That's what's happening. By the way, 
Baal and Asherah are alive and captivating in our generation. They just have different garb, different names, different ways that, that sometimes is even celebrated. Just an example of each of them from Scripture. Uh, by the way, Scripture names Baal and Asherah 73 times in the Old Testament. That's how prevalent these idols were. 73 times listed in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. Two examples, Jeremiah 19, we, re we read they, meaning the people of Israel. They built high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as an offering to Baal. And then in 1 Kings 14, we read, they set up high places of Asherah on every hill, and there were shrine prostitutes in the land. One generation removed from a generation that somehow, somehow, the next generation didn't even know what the Lord had done. Now, if we were to interview those parents of that generation, if we were to interview uh, people at the tabernacle while they were worshiping, they would have said, Oi, there's no way that our kids will, would ever follow those. There's no way. And that's what is easy for us to say. And that's why... We will do whatever it takes, whatever effort, whatever mobilizing volunteers, whatever funds, whatever shaping of ministries, whatever it takes to help reach and equip the next generation to have a biblical worldview, to know what the Lord has done. Because what evokes our hearts with love for God is not religiosity. What evokes our love for God is when we know what the Lamb of God Jesus did on the cross at great cost to liberate us. Oh, God. How else could I respond but love you? I love you, God. And to have a biblical worldview, to be able to, to understand truth and look through that lens in the marketplace of ideas and values and worldviews, and to have an understanding that we're a people who are about God's hope and justice in a broken, fractured world. We'll do whatever it takes. So, think about it. Right now, there are children growing up in Amherst. There are also children who are growing up in Lagos, Nigeria, and in Shanghai, China, and Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and many different other nations. And many of them are going to grow up, and they're going to move here for education or for jobs. You know, the, the, this is one of the most unique strategic places of ministry. Did you know that? In my pastor's group, it's called the Larger Church Network. I'm from the second smallest church. Many of these are pastors of some of the larger churches around, you know, New England. Many of them say, say to me, oh man, Greg, your context, that is so awesome. This is a Pentecost town. God, God bring, brings people from our local community, from the nation, and from the nations for education, for jobs, for research. What a unique opportunity to reach this emerging generation, to equip the emerging generation, and also to be so blessed by them and learn and grow from them and their gifts and, and what they bring. And then to see them sent out and someday stand before God. And God says, let me show you your coaching tree. 
Let me show you what your seemingly feeble efforts. That, that was part of a mosaic that changed the trajectory of this person's life. And then let me share with you what they went back to their home country or this country or this community and the difference they made for the gospel. Amen? So, a few steps that we can be taking together. together. Uh, three initiatives as this fall, fall launches. Now, know that First Baptist has for years and continues to pour in tremendous resources and, and teams um, for emerging generation ministries. But these are three new or three renewed initiatives that we're launching this fall. First of all, college lunch. Back in the day, we used to have college lunch. But we want to restart it. College lunch will be lunch um, once a month, and then we want to expand it starting the next semester. And it's this simple. We want, we, we want the church to be a home away from home for, for everyone, especially for college students who are arriving. And this is a chance. At, really call it church lunch because everyone is invited. The reason we're calling it college lunch is because a lot of college students, if they hear church lunch, they might not come. But if it's college lunch, then they'll come. But the whole church, we're going to rehearse it with the cookout today. That's part of why we're doing this. You know, showing this is what we're talking about. And as we have lunch, imagine families coming for, for the first time and they say, hey, you know, there's lunch provided. Lunch provided for a family? We're there, right? Imagine college students coming from the five colleges and just connecting and getting to know people and beginning to feel like this is a home away from home. The second thing is the hub, which uh, primarily is for youth and college students, but it's used for all kinds of different purposes. It's been refurbished after the Freedom Cafe closed. Um, we still need to buy more of the furnishings and some of the resources for ministry. And the last thing is a child care fund. In the past, we've had a child care fund. See, basically, none of these could fit into our budget. We have more limited budget because, to be honest with you, through the pandemic, giving's down. And so these just didn't fit within the budget, which means this. Please don't take from your regular giving to give to these things. It'll just mess up the budget. It's better not to give than do that. But we're looking to, to raise about $7,500. By the way, I'm not ashamed to talk about money. Here's why. My calling is to help steward all of our gifts and all of our, all of our resources. And if we leave money off the table, someday we're going to stand before God and say, man, I love you. You were discipled, but you know what? You were so American with your money that it was never part of your discipleship. And so don't think somehow, if I give my little bit, it's not going to matter. I, I don't care about amount. God, God's going to provide this. To me, it isn't amount. It's our hearts being shaped by Christ because whatever we invest in, whatever we worship, that's what shapes us the most. So a child care fund so that parents with young children, there were like eight babies born during the pandemic. Um, Aaron and Eric, just two weeks ago, welcomed their precious baby daughter. Congratulations. Woo! Yeah. And so um, more and more young families, we want those parents to be able to go to growth groups and church events and have child care credits so they can do child care in their own home with whoever they, they want, but we're going to pay for it, so they can come to events in one of the most isolating seasons of young parents' lives. So, to kind of wrap it up here, 
kind of next steps that we can take. First of all, give. Make sure to mark our giving to the Generation to Generation Fund when we give online or check, whatever it is. Generation to Generation. Second thing is serve. We're forming a college lunch team. There's a team of, I don't know, uh, about 15 people who were here yesterday. They arrived this morning really early. You don't have to arrive really early to help with it. But, um, and they're putting this cookout together because they're so passionate about us casting vision for college lunches. So we can join a college lunch team. Some of that will be helping kitchen or setup or clean up, uh, hosting tables, interacting with, with people, students, whatever. The Hub Youth, uh, the, uh, the student ministry is growing, and there's a need for everything from like chaperones to help cook a meal, uh, to help lead, lead small groups, or just to be there and just share life with students as a mosaic of witnesses to them. And then third is Kids World, which is happening right now, lower level. Um, uh, always the need for helpers, teachers, people with check-in to greet parents and check-in the kids a myriad of different ways. And then finally, pray. Let's pray and pray and pray for this semester and this unique opportunity with these thousands of college students coming back and new people, especially with young families, moving to our area. Uh, so we're going to have a prayer gathering on September 4th. That's next Sunday night. You, you'll receive information about this email. We're going to have a prayer gathering. We're just going to pray it up for marriages, families, children, school, campus, Christ's mission uh, for this next step. Finally, wrapping up, three resources. Because I don't want to just you know, preach a sermon like, let's go out and do it and not have at least some kind of resources. So three things. First of all, this book, The Genius of Generosity, this book's free for everyone. On your way out, if you look under the world map, you can see on the table with, with the blue cloth, this is free, free for us. And don't worry, we didn't buy this. A church who we partner, I'll say, Grace Chapel, who we know some of their pastors there, and I know one of them very well, um, had extra of these from a donor. And their executive pastor said, hey, would you like these? And I said, great. And they shipped us a box of these. Amen? So thankful for that. Uh, this is a book that's about financial stewardship. Just, you know, what, what does Scripture really teach about finances with some wise money management? Uh, and, and you can read it in one sitting. It's small. The second thing is parenting beyond your capacity. So all parents with uh, kids in our church family starting next Sunday can pick that up. Just stop by uh, Kids World Check-In and the books are there and, and this is a book for parents. It's put out by Orange. It's got sage. It's not parents do these eight things and then we feel guilty when we don't. The authors open up saying we struggle as parents. So in this together, how do we nurture our children intentionally in faith? And then finally, the parent cue. I have the parent cue on my phone. I don't have kids anymore, so I put Snickerdoodle the dog on it, okay? Just because I wanted to get the resources, okay? He's not taking much to it, but I don't know. But, but um, as it, it will deliver to parents, or anyone who wants to be a spiritual parent, delivers resources, articles, videos, activities for parents or for kids to watch and to experience. And we'll be talking more about that next Sunday when we talk about bringing this into our homes. Whew, that's a lot. God has put us in such a unique place, in a unique moment. 
Let's capture the moment and do whatever it takes so the gospel may be real and vital and active amidst the emerging generation and every generation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.